abomination of desolation. This is an intriguing presentation about the coming Sunday law. Let us begin by reading from God's holy word in which is recorded the experience of the wisest man that ever lived upon the face of planet earth. I refer to King Solomon in the day when he was wholly consecrated to his maker. Listen to his amazing prayer when he dedicated the temple. I am reading from 1 Kings, the 8th chapter, beginning with verse 60. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. But as I read further on in this book, we discover that the king, King Solomon, participated in the abomination of desolation to such an extent that instead of worshiping the God of heaven, he worshiped the devil himself. Let me read this in 1 Kings, the 11th chapter. And it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. For Solomon went after Astaroth, the goddess of the Zionists, and after Malcolm, the abomination of the Amorites. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chimos, the abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem and for Moloch the abomination of the children of Ammon. Never forget this contrast. While Solomon exalted the law of heaven God was with him to such an extent that he ruled with impartiality and with mercy. God bestowed upon him both wealth and worldly honor to such an extent that Solomon became known as the wisest man that ever lived. But sad to say, Solomon turned from the worship of the true God to the worship of heathen gods, of wood and of stone, in which he participated in the most vulgar idolatrous rites of paganism in which he offered his own flesh and blood his own children in sacrifice to the devil the god of Moloch. why how could such a satanic change take place in such a promising life we find the answers in prophets and kings pages 51 to 59. I will not read all of these word for word, but I just want to give the highlights. It says, Solomon ventured upon forbidden ground. Now notice how this came about. Then it tells us, as inclination gained the ascendancy over reason. Again, he entered into unholy alliance with nation after nation. Again, 
the commands of Jehovah were set aside for the customs of the surrounding people. And here's another. Little by little, he withheld from God that unswerving obedience. He conformed more and more closely to the customs of the surrounding nations. Little by little we see how these changes came. Again I'm reading, his separation from God through communication with idolaters was his ruin. He mistook license for liberty. He tried, but at what a cost to unite light with darkness, good with evil, purity with impurity, Christ with Belial. During these years of apostasy, he united his interests with satanic agencies. And what was the result? The Israelites rapidly lost their abhorrence of idol worship. Now, could this be happening to God's end-time remnant church? Modern Israel of our day, God's remnant? Now, in order to find the answers, we first must know clearly the meaning of the words, the abomination of desolation. We discover that these words are found in both the Old and the New Testament. Let me read them. Daniel 11, verse 31. And he shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Then turning over to the New Testament, Matthew 24, 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. It's interesting to note that both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the meaning is practically identical. For the Hebrew word means disgusting, filthy, idolatrous. And the Greek word used in the New Testament, means detestable idolatry. So when we read the Hebrew and the Greek, we find that they are applying to idolatry, which in Matthew 24, 15, is the abomination of paganism. And as we read in Daniel eleven thirty one, is the abomination of the papacy. Now this is clearly revealed as you study Revelation, the 13th chapter, verse 2, in which it says the dragon, and we know that represents paganism, it says it gave to the beast, which we know is the papacy. It says here that the dragon gave to the beast his power, his seat, and his great authority, which, of course, was his religion. So divine inspiration declares them to be one and the same. And God declares both paganism and papacy to be an abomination. Now, let us discuss the idolatry of paganism first. Who were these gods? Well, you will find that one of them was Astaroth and the other was Moloch. Moloch represented the sun god. 
and this was declared to be Nimrod, who was the ruler of Babylon, who had died and went to the sun. And then you will find that Astaroth symbolized the moon god, and this represented his wife, Semiramis, Nimrod's wife. And then, of course, there should be children of these gods, and we find that they chose the blazing star in the constellation Aries, which is commonly called the ram, to be the son of Nimrod, the sun. And as Semiramis had an illegitimate son called Tammuz, they felt that this was the reincarnation of Nimrod, who had died. Thus we find the pagan trinity, which became the pagan trinity of Baal worship. As you read in volume 3, page 263, the altars of Baal, the priests of Baal, who sacrificed to the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now consider why such worship was called an abomination by God. Because the pagans, in worshiping the sun, moon, and stars, were actually worshiping the devil. Nimrod was symbolized in his worship as Lucifer. This is why God warned Israel to have nothing to do with paganism. He knew that the temptations to become like them in custom and in worship, that in associating with them, that they would be led away from the true God, and they would join the pagans in the worship of Lucifer, who was the arch enemy of God. Now, most important question for us to discuss here, is there a significance of Baal worship in modern Christianity today? In the book Great Controversy, 583, are these words. Though in a different form, idolatry exists in the Christian world today as verily as it existed among ancient Israel in the days of Elijah. The God of many professed wise men, of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of polished fashionable circles, of many colleges and universities, even of some theological institutions, is little better than Baal, the sun god of the Phoenicians. Sun worship has been around since the days of Babylon, and the day that they had to worship, to worship their sun, has been and still is today called Sunday, Baal's Day. God has always called this an abomination. When King Solomon worshipped Baal, the sun god, this abomination forced God to remove his protection from his people. In Bible Commentary 2, page 1032, the candlestick was removed out of its place when Solomon forgot God. Why was this? I read on. 
he lost the light of God, the lost, he lost his wisdom of God. Why? He confounded idolatry with religion. Now let us examine another very important scripture that has to do with the prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem. And it also has to do with God's plan of escape. In Matthew 24, 15 and 16, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Then reading on in Mark thirteen fourteen, And when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, notice those words, let him that readeth understand. When you put these two scriptures together, the meaning becomes very clear. What Christ is saying was that when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, then Christ's followers were to flee and not to return. Now history records that this actually happened in A.D. 66, when the Roman army under General Cestus surrounded Jerusalem, and then unexpectedly retreated. But before he withdrew, he had planted the banners of Rome upon holy ground. Now this was the custom of the Roman army, to place the lion-faced sun banner with its sun rays in their encampment for the pagan Rome soldiers worshipped the sun god, and the army felt secure and assured of victory when their sun god was present with them in this banner. But we must recall Christ's words, as did his followers, when the banner of sun worship was implanted. I am reading here that they were to flee, or they would be destroyed. In Great Controversy, 25 and 26, Christ presented before them an outline of the prominent events to transpire before the close of time. Now notice, there's a double parallel here. His words were not then fully understood, but their meaning was to be unfolded as his people should heed the instruction therein given. The prophecy which he uttered was twofold in its meaning. While foreshadowing the destruction of Jerusalem, it prefigured also the terrors of the last great day. Jesus declared to his listeners the judgments that were to fall upon the apostate Israel and especially the retributive vengeance that would come upon them for their rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. Unmistakable signs would precede the awful climax. The dreaded hour would come suddenly and swiftly. Now notice. When the idolatrous standards of Rome 
should be set up in the holy ground, which extended some furloughs outside the city walls. Then the followers of Christ were to find safety in flight. When the warning sign should be seen, judgments were to follow so quickly that those who would escape must make no delay. Throughout the land of Judah, as well in Jerusalem itself, the signal for flight must be immediately obeyed. They must not hesitate a moment, lest they be involved in the general destruction. And there followed this amazing statement in Great Controversy 30. Because the people, the Christians, obeyed, it says, I'm quoting, not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Because they obeyed. They obeyed. They believed what God had said. Now then comes the message for us today. Did you notice that Christ's prophecy had a twofold meaning? That it also prefigured the terror of the last great day? Now what do these words of mean to us? In Great Controversy, page 36. The Savior's prophecy concerning the visitation of judgment upon Jerusalem is to have another fulfillment, of which that terrible desolation was but a faint shadow. In the fate of the chosen city, we may behold the doom of a world that has rejected God's mercy and trampled upon his law. Now the question is, will our remnant church today repeat the sins of old Jerusalem? Then comes this startling admonition in Selected Messages 2, page 390. The Lord has declared that the history of the past shall be rehearsed as we enter upon the closing work. Now that means that what's happened back then is going to be repeated again. And there is an abundance of evidence that our leadership within our church today is following in the footsteps of old Israel. God's people back there wanted to be like the surrounding nations. And today, the people within our church seem to be determined to unite with the other churches around them, those that keep Sunday, the abomination of desolation. Let's take a look at some of the facts. Our leadership in our church today is fully cooperating with the World Council of Churches. We are totally involved in the ecumenical movement whose main objective is to develop a one-world church. And this one-world church will soon enforce a worldwide Sunday day of worship. Now, I hear some of you say, Brother Nelson, that's quite a mouthful. But listen carefully. 
Who do you suppose has been the secretary of this ecumenical organization? I am reading not from our papers, but from the Ecumenical Press Service of October 1986. Rome, staff members of more than a dozen Christian communes. Now, what does it say about them here? It says their world organization for the various Christian traditions held their annual conference of secretaries. It included, now notice, separate sessions with the Pope. Now notice who's guiding this ecumenical movement. Who is behind it? It says they're holding sessions with the Pope. And the leaders of the Federation of Evangelical Churches. It says here, as I read on, the conference chose Paris de Prey the Secretary of the Vatican Secretariat for promoting Christian unity. Notice how closely the leadership of Rome is involved in this ecumenical movement. And then it says, B.B. Beach, the Director of the Public Affairs and Religious Liberty Department of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, continues as the group's secretary. Yes, you heard me right. But not only has B.B. Beach been acting as the secretary of the ecumenical organization, he has also served as the secretary of the World Confession Families, which is a part of the Faith and Order Commission, and this is the theological arm of the World Council of Churches, in which Beach himself has stated in a letter, and I'm quoting, I have been representing our church at this meeting for nine years. I have served as secretary of the conference. Unbelievable that our church leadership working with the Pope in the development of an ecumenical movement. And not only is our church in complete union with the World Council of Churches, but most amazing of all, they are actually seeking doctrinal union. In 1982, our church leadership was in attendance at the World Council of Churches in Lima, Peru. I'm quoting from the Baptist Eucharist and Ministry, the Faith and Order paper, number 111, and listen carefully. Over 100 theologians met in Lima, Peru, and recommended unanimously to transmit this agreed statement. And who are listed? I'll read some of them. The Eastern Orthodox, the Oriental Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, the Old Catholics, the Lutherans, the Angelical, the Reformed, the Methodist, the United Disciples, the Baptists, the Adventists, and the Pentecostal. And what was our church's response? This quotation again is taken from the church's respond 
in the Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry, Volume 2, page 341 to 343, published by the World Council of Churches. Listen to this. Our church officially states through this council, quote, the purpose of this essay is primarily to show how Seventh-day Adventists' understanding of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper and to highlight Adventist understanding and practice of the Eucharist. Unbelievable! The practice of the Eucharist is the abomination of desolation, the idolatrous sacrifice of the Mass. In Selected Messages 1, page 204, the principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. The founders of this work would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of this new movement. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice, but God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. And so, the glorious truth of the seventh-day Sabbath we are told, is to be lightly regarded in the end of time. And would you believe, I discovered in Signs of the Times, March 1992, page 22 and 23. God is glad for us to go to church both days, meaning Sunday and Saturday. Notice, God is glad for us to go to church both days. He wants us to worship him both days. Anyone who takes a whole day out of every week to spend with God will have more of God's power in his life. And God can do more through him and in him. Now this is exactly how the Sabbath was changed into Sunday way back there in the early days of Christendom. And here we find that our paper is promoting the same thing that happened back there in the early days of the early Christians. Before I say anything more about this, maybe I should read to refresh our minds 
what the seal is of the living God. In Ezekiel 20, verse 12 and 20, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifieth them. And hallow my Sabbath, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. In volume 6, page 350, From the pillar of cloud Christ declared concerning the Sabbath, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it shall be a sign between me and you throughout your generation, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Exodus, the 31st chapter, verse 13. The Sabbath was given to the world as a sign of God as the Creator, is also the sign of him as our sanctifier. Now consider how obedience to the Sabbath is now being emphasized. What were the words that it gave to us? It said it would be lightly regarded. I read in Questions on Doctrines, page 153, Seventh-day Adventists <clears throat> do not rely upon their Sabbath-keeping as a means of salvation or of winning merit with God. We are saved by grace alone. Who said so? In a book we still believe, page 64, by the General Conference President, I'm reading now, if, if we consider Sabbath-keeping a requirement of salvation, we have turned the commandment on its head. We are not entering into God's rest at all. Now, what does he mean by entering into rest? Perhaps I should pause here before we get into this theological question. For the new theology teaches that obedience, overcoming, and victorious living are not going to be the issues of the last day. In a book printed by the Pacific Press, To Know God, are these words. But I invite you today to enter into God's rest. There's that word again. And what does he say it means? To cease from your own works in trying to obey and overcome and be victorious. Now, before we get into this word rest, which of course means that salvation in the new theology comes from resting in the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on the cross. This teaching is nothing more than only believe and you will be saved. It's commonly preached in all of the Protestant churches of today. And this is the basis of being saved by faith alone. But first, before I go any further into this, I think it would be well to pause here and read the counsel of God regarding faith and works. 
Listen as I read from the Signs of the Times of June 16, 1890. It's the clearest statement that I have ever found, and I'm going to read it word for word. There are many in the Christian world who claim that all that is necessary to salvation is to have faith. Works are nothing. Faith is the only essential. But God's word tells us that faith without works is dead, being alone. Many refuse to obey God's commandments, yet they make a great deal of faith. But faith must have a foundation. And notice these words. God's promises are all made upon conditions. If we do his will, if we walk in truth, then we may ask what we will, and it shall be done unto us. While we earnestly endeavor to be obedient, God will hear our petitions, but he will not bless us in disobedience. If we choose to disobey his commandments, we may cry, Faith, faith. Only have faith. Faith without works is dead, James 2.20. Such faith will only be a, as sounding brass and as a tingling cymbal. In order to have the benefits of God's grace, we must do our part. We must faithfully work and bring forth fruits for repentance. We are to do all that we can do on our part to fight the good fight of faith. We are to wrestle, to labor, to strive, to agonize, to enter in at the straight gates. Now that doesn't sound like resting, does it? That doesn't sound like Jesus is going to do it all for us. Now does it, honestly? Let me read on. In one way, we are thrown upon our own energies. We are to strive earnestly to be zealous and to repent, to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts from every defilement. We are to reach the highest standard, believing that God will help us in our efforts. We must seek, if we would find, and seek in faith. We must knock that the door may be open unto us. The Bible teaches that everything regarding our salvation depends upon our own course of action. Faith and works go hand in hand. They act harmoniously in the work of overcoming. Works without faith are dead, and faith without works is dead. Works will never save us, it is the merit of Christ that will avail us our belief, will avail us in our behalf. Through faith in him, Christ will make all our imperfect efforts acceptable to God. The faith we are required to have is not a do-nothing faith. Saving faith is that which works by love and purifies the soul. He who will lift up holy hands to God 
without wrath and doubting will walk intelligently in the way of God's commandments. Now, there is nothing in these things that would give you the impression that all you have to do is just believe, just, just rest in the Lord, that he'll do the obeying for you. I read on. Faith and works will keep us evenly balanced and make us successful in the work of perfecting Christian character. Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. Then notice this illustration. Speaking of temporal food, the apostle says, Forever when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Second Thessalonians 3.10 Then these words. The same rule applies to the bread of eternal life. Let him make efforts to obtain it. Nothing sounds like this rest that is being promoted today. Then it, she adds in finishing, when it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end. Notice when the efforts are put forth. Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man's best service. And he makes up for the deficiency with his own divine merit but he will not accept those who claim to have faith in him and yet are disloyal to his Father's commandment. We hear a great deal about faith, but we need to hear a great deal more about works. Many are deceiving their own souls by living an easygoing, accommodating, crossless religion. Unquote. Now, when you understand this new theology teaching, you will find it to be contrary to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. For faith is dead if there is no works. Now, we can see why this celebration that is being promoted today is so excitable. For all that one has to do is to believe because Christ did all the obeying for you on the cross. So they say. We need, we, we read in this book, We Still Believe, page 40 and 41, our assurance of salvation is based on God's grace by faith, not on our behavior or character development. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Then notice, each sin we may commit does not turn off salvation in our lives. This is why the gospel is unconditional good news. Our assurance of salvation is based not on our behavior, but on Christ. Our assurance of salvation is based not on reaching some level of character development, but on our relationship with Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
Now this is what is written in this book about rest. And it is all taken from these three verses in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, in, uh, verses 3, 9, and 10, and I'm going to read them. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Now, let me read to you of this new theology from We Still Believe by the General Conference President of how he takes this text, which is contrary to the fourth commandment, in his teaching. Notice, I'm quoting, Notice the symbolism of what happened at creation. God worked six days and then rested the seventh after his work was completed. But for Adam and Eve, the process was reversed. They first rested on the Sabbath and then followed it with six days of work. Now that's not what the commandments say. They had nothing to do with God's created acts. They came on the scene at the end of creation work week. They simply received their lives from him and all their blessings of Eden as a free gift. Now these words. In the same way, salvation comes by resting in the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. We can receive the blessings of salvation in no other way. This is how the Sabbath rest becomes our outward sign of the glorious truth of righteousness by faith. Hebrews 4 clearly sets forth this symbolism. This is nothing more than teaching a faith without works, so cleverly written. It's the same kind of teaching you will find in the book Beyond Belief, written by Jack Sequeira. In fact, if you compare these two books, Beyond Belief and We Still Believe, you will find paragraphs identical in thought and even a sentence word by word. What a tragedy that we are now being fed a program of Sabbath keeping that can be lightly regarded in a time when our church leadership should be getting us ready for the coming Sunday law. Instead, we are being told that behavior doesn't count anymore, that character development is not necessary, that there is no need to confess all of our sins before Jesus comes. Just rest in the Lord. He did all your obeying for you on the cross. Dare I add, with such a new theology being now taught, 
What do you think will happen when this Sunday law actually comes? Oh, it will be very easy for these who teach such things to say, go ahead, keep both days. It doesn't matter. Jesus kept the Sabbath for you. Relax. Rest in the Lord. But let me tell you, we must remember that obedience will be the last test of the end time. In volume 1, page 353 and 354, the decree will go forth that they, God's commandment-keeping people, must disregard the Sabbath of the fourth commandment and honor the first day or lose their lives. But they will not yield and trample under their feet the Sabbath of the Lord and honor an institution of the papacy. Again in Bible Commentary 7, page 983, in the warfare to be waged in the last days, there will be united in opposition to God's people all the corrupt powers that have apostatized from the law of Jehovah. I'm sorry, from the allegiance to the law of Jehovah. In this warfare, the Sabbath of the fourth commandment will be the great point of issue. For in the Sabbath commandment, the great lawgiver identifies himself as the creator of heaven and earth. Anyone can see now that the abomination of desolation which contains the banner of Lucifer will soon be planted around Sabbath keepers. And when this happens, it will be assigned to us as it was to the early Christians just before the destruction of Jerusalem. It will be assigned to flee the great large cities. In volume 5, page 464, the time is not far distant when, like the early disciples, we shall be forced to seek a refuge in desolate and solitary places. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for the flight to the Judean Christians, so the assumption of power on the part of our nation in the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. It will then be time to leave the large cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes in secluded places among the mountains. Now, does this mean that you and I still have time to get out of the big cities? Please. Please listen to the urgency of this last quotation. Ere long, there will be such strife and confusion in the cities that those who wish to leave them will not be able. We must be prepared for these issues. This is the light that is given me. I've quoted that from the General Conference Bulletin, April 6, 1903. And so you can see that the abomination of desolation is just upon us. God help us to follow God's counsel 
and not the words of men in their new theology. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, help us to hold firm to the sure foundation. Help us to be faithful. God, help us to learn to have a mighty faith backed up by our works. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.